Part Three of The Aliens by Murray Linster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three. Only one figure has come out, reported Baird. The skipper watched on a vision plate, but Baird reported so all the Nicola's company would know. It's small, less than five feet. I'll see better in a moment. Sunlight smote down into the valley between the ships. It's wearing a pressure suit. It seems to be the same material as the ship. It walks on two legs, as we do. It has two arms, or something very similar. The helmet of the suit is very high. It looks like the armor knights used to fight in. It's making its way to our airlock. It does not use magnetic sole shoes. It's holding on to lines threaded along the other ship's hull. The skipper said curtly, Mr. Baird, I hadn't noticed the absence of magnetic shoes. You seem to have an eye for important items. Report to the airlock in person. Leave Lieutenant Holt to keep an eye on outside objects. Quickly, Mr. Baird. Baird laid his hand on Diane's shoulder. She smiled at him. I'll watch, she promised. He went out of the radar room, walking on what had been a side wall. The giddiness and dizziness of continued rotation was growing less now. He was getting used to it. But the Nicola seemed strange indeed, with the standard up and down, and earth gravity replaced by a vertical which was all askew, and a weight of ounces instead of a hundred and seventy pounds. He reached the airlock just as the skipper arrived. There were others there, armed and in pressure suits. The skipper glared about him. "'I am in command here,' he said very grimly indeed. Mr. Tain has a special function, but I am in command. We and the creatures on the Pluey ship are in a very serious fix. One of them apparently means to come on board. There will be no hostility, no sneering, no threatening gestures. This is a parley. You will be careful, but you will not be trigger-happy. He glared around again, just as the metallic rapping came upon the Nicola's airlock door. The skipper nodded. Let him in the lock, Mr. Baird. Baird obeyed. The humming of the unlocking system sounded. There were clankings. The outer airlock closed. There was a faint whistling as air went in. The skipper nodded again. Baird opened the inner door. It was zero eight hours, ten minutes ship time. The Plumie stepped confidently out into the topsy-turvy corridors of the Nicola. He was about the size of a ten-year-old human boy, and features which were definitely not grotesque showed through the clear plastic of his helmet. His pressure suit was, engineering-wise, a very clean job. His whole appearance was prepossessing. When he spoke, very clear and quite high sounds, soprano sounds, came from a small speaker unit at his shoulder. For us to talk, said the skipper heavily, is pure nonsense. But I take it you've something to say? The plumie gazed about with an air of lively curiosity. Then he drew out a flat pad with a white surface and sketched swiftly. He offered it to the Nicola's skipper. We want this on record, he growled, staring about. Diane's voice said capably from a speaker somewhere nearby. Sir, there's a scanner for inspection of objects brought aboard. Hold the plate flat and I'll have a photograph. 
Right. The skipper said curtly to the plumie, You've drawn our two ships linked as they are. What have you to say about it? He handed back the plate. The plumie pressed a stud, and it was blank again. He sketched and offered it once more. Hmm, said the skipper. You can't use your drive while we're glued together, eh? Well? The plumie reached up and added lines to the drawing. So, rumbled the skipper, inspecting the additions. You say it's up to us to use our drive for both ships? He growled approvingly. You consider there's a truce. You must, because we're both in the same fix, and not a nice one either. True enough. We can't fight each other without committing suicide now. But we haven't any drive left. We're a derelict. How am I going to say that, if I decide to? Baird could see the lines on the plate from the angle at which the skipper held it. He said, Sir, we've been mapping up in the radar room. Those last lines are map coordinates. A separate sketch, sir. I think he's saying that the two ships together are on a falling course toward the sun, that we have to do something or both vessels will fall into it. We should be able to check this, sir. Ha! growled the skipper. That's all we need. Absolutely all we need. To come here, get into a crazy fight, have our drive melt to scrap, get crazily welded to a plumy ship, and then for both of us to fry together. We don't need anything more than that. Diane's voice came on the speaker. Sir, the last radar fixes on the planet in range gave us a course directly toward the sun. I'll repeat the observations. The skipper growled. Tane thrust himself forward. He snarled. Why doesn't this plumie take off its helmet? It lands on oxygen planets. Does it think it's too good to breathe our air? Baird caught the plumie's eye. He made a gesture suggesting the removal of the space helmet. The plumie gestured in return to a tiny vent in the suit. He opened something and gas whistled out. He cut it off. The question of why he did not open or remove his helmet was answered. The atmosphere he breathed would not do men any good, nor would theirs do him any good either. Tane said suspiciously, How do we know he's breathing the stuff he let out then? This creature isn't human. It's got no right to attack humans. Now it's trying to trick us. His voice changed to a snarl. We'd better wring its neck, teach its kind a lesson. The skipper roared at him. Be quiet. Our ship is a wreck. We have to consider the facts. We and these plumies are in a fix together, and we have to get out of it before we start to teach anybody anything. He glared at Tane. Then he said heavily, Mr. Baird, you seem to notice things. Take this plumie over the ship. Show him our drive melted down so he'll realize we can't possibly tow his ship into an orbit. He knows that we're armed and that we can't handle our warheads at this range. So we can't fool each other. We might as well be frank. But you will take full note of his reactions, Mr. Baird. Baird advanced, and the skipper made a gesture. The plumie regarded Baird with interested eyes, and Baird led the way for a tour of the Nicola. It was confusing even to him, with right hand converted to up and left hand to down, and sideways now almost vertical. 
On the way the plumie made more clear flute-like sounds and more gestures. Baird answered. Our gravity pull was that way, he explained, and things fell so fast. He grasped a handrail and demonstrated the speed with which things fell in normal ship gravity. He used a pocket communicator for the falling weight. It was singularly easy to say some things, even highly technical ones, because that'd be what the plumie would want to know. But quite commonplace things would be very difficult to convey. Diane's voice came out of the communicator. There are no novelties outside, she said quietly. It looks like this is the only plumy ship anywhere around. It could have been exploring like us. Maybe it was looking for the people who put up space survey markers. Maybe, agreed Baird, using the communicator. Is that stuff about falling into the sun correct? It seems so, said Diane composedly. I'm checking again. So far the best course I can get means we graze the sun's photosphere in fourteen days, six hours, allowing for acceleration by the sun's gravity. And you and I, said Baird wryly, have been acting as professional associates only when— Don't say it, said Diane shakily. It's terrible. He put the communicator back in his pocket. The plumie had watched him. He had a peculiarly gallant air, this small figure in golden space armor with its high-crested helmet. They reached the engine room, and there was the giant drive shaft of the Nicola, once wrapped with yard-thick coils which could induce an incredible density of magnetic flux in the metal. Even the return magnetic field through the ship's cobalt steel hull was many times higher than saturation. Now. The coils were sagging, mostly melted. There were places where re-solidified metal smoked noisomely against non-metallic floor or wall covering. Engineers labored doggedly in the trivial gravity to clean up the mess. It's past repair, said Baird to the ship's first engineer. It's junk, said that individual dourly. Give us six months and a place to set up a wire-drawing mill and an insulation synthesizer and we could rebuild it, but nothing less will be any good. The plumie stared at the drive. He examined the shaft from every angle. He inspected the melted and partly melted and merely burned out sections of the drive coils. He was plainly unable to understand in any fashion the principle of the magnetronic drive. Baird was tempted to try to explain, because there was surely no secret about a ship drive, but he could imagine no diagrams or gestures which would convey the theory of what happened in cobalt steel when it was magnetized beyond 100,000 Gauss flux density. And without that theory one simply couldn't explain a magnetronic drive. They left the engine room. They visited the rocket batteries. The generator room was burned out, like the drive, by the inconceivable lightning bolt which had passed between the ships on contact. The plumie was again puzzled. Baird made it clear that the generator room supplied electric current for the ship's normal lighting system and services. The plumie could grasp that idea. They examined the crew's quarters and the mess room, and the plumie walked confidently among the members of the human crew who a little while since had tried so painstakingly to destroy his vessel. He made a good impression. "'These little guys,' said a crewman to Baird admiringly, "'they got something. They can handle a ship, 
<laughs> I bet they could almost make that ship of theirs play checkers. Close to it, agreed Baird. He realized something. He pulled the communicator from his pocket. Diane, contact the skipper. He wanted observations. Here's one. The plumie acts like soldiers used to act in ancient days when they wore armor, and we have the same reaction. They will fight like the devil, but during a truce they'll be friendly, admiring each other as scrappers, but ready to fight as hard as ever when the truce is over. We have the same reaction. Tell the skipper I've an idea that it's a part of their civilization. Maybe it's a necessary part of any civilization. Tell him I guess that there may be necessarily parallel evolution of attitudes among rational races, as there are parallel evolutions of eyes and legs and wings and fins among all animals everywhere. If I'm right, somebody from this ship will be invited to tour the plumie. It's only a guess, but tell him. Immediately, said Diane. The plumie followed gallantly as Baird made a steep climb up what once was the floor of a corridor. Then Tane stepped out before them. His eyes burned. "'Giving him a clear picture, eh?' he rasped. "'Letting him spy out everything?' Baird pressed the communicator call for the radar room and said coldly, "'I'm obeying orders. Look, Tane, you were picked for your job because you were a xenophobe.' It helps in your proper functioning. But this plumie is here under a flag of truce. Flag of truce, snarled Tane. It's vermin. It's not human. I'll— If you move one inch nearer him, said Baird gently, just one inch. The skipper's voice bellowed through the general call speakers all over the ship. Mr. Tane, you will go to your quarters under arrest. Mr. Baird— Burn him down if he hesitates. Then there was a rushing, and scrambling figures appeared and were all about. They were members of the Nicola's crew sent by the skipper. They regarded the plumie with detachment, but pain with wary expectancy. Tane turned purple with fury. He shouted, he raged, he called Baird and the others plumie lovers and vermin worshippers. He shouted foulnesses at them but he did not attack. When, still shouting, he went away, Baird said apologetically to the plumie, He's a xenophobe. He has a pathological hatred of strangers, even of strangeness. We have him on board because— Then he stopped. The plumie wouldn't understand, of course, but its eyes took on a curious look. It was almost as if, looking at Baird, they twinkled. Baird took him back to the skipper. "'He's got the picture, sir,' he reported. The plumie pulled out his sketch plate. He drew on it. He offered it. The skipper said heavily, "'You guessed right, Mr. Baird. He suggests that someone from this ship go on board the plumie vessel. He's drawn two pressure-suited figures going in their airlock. One's larger than the other. Will you go?' "'Naturally.' said Baird. Then he added thoughtfully, But I'd better carry a portable scanner, sir. It should work perfectly well through a bronze hull, sir. The skipper nodded and began to sketch a diagram which would amount to an acceptance of the plumie's invitation. This was at zero seven hours forty minutes ship time. 
Outside the sedately rotating metal hulls, the one a polished blue silver and the other a glittering golden bronze, the cosmos continued to be as always. The haze from explosive fumes and rocket fuel was perhaps a little thinner. The brighter stars shone through it. The gas-giant planet outward from the sun was a perceptible disk instead of a diffuse glow. The oxygen planet to sunward showed again as a lighted crescent. Presently Baird, in a human spacesuit, accompanied the plumie into the Nicola's airlock and out to emptiness. His magnetic-soled shoes clung to the Nicola's cobalt-steel skin. Fastened to his shoulder there was a tiny scanner and microphone, which would relay everything he saw and heard back to the radar room and to Diane. She watched tensely as he went inside the plumy ship. Other screens relayed the image and his voice to other places on the Nicola. He was gone a long time. From the beginning, of course, there were surprises. When the plumy escort removed his helmet on his own ship, the reason for the helmet's high crest was apparent. He had a high crest of what looked remarkably like feathers, and it was not artificial. It grew there. The reason for conventionalized plumes on bronze survey plates was clear. It was exactly like the reason for human features or figures as decorative additions to the inscriptions on space survey marker plates. Even the plumie's hands had odd chrysalis which stood out when he bent his fingers. The other plumies were no less graceful and no less colorful. They had equally clear soprano voices. They were equally miniature and so devoid of apparent menace. But there were also technical surprises. Baird was taken immediately to the plumie ship's engine room and Diane heard the sharp intake of breath with which he appeared to recognize his working principle. There were plumy engineers working feverishly at it, attempting to discover something to repair, but they found nothing. The plumy drive simply would not work. They took Baird through the ship's entire fabric, and their purpose, when it became clear, was startling. The plumy ship had no rocket tubes. It had no beam projectors except small-sized objects, which must be their projectors of tractor and presser beams. They were elaborately grounded to the ship's substance, but they were not originally designed for ultra-heavy service. They hadn't and couldn't have the enormous capacity Baird had expected. He was astounded. When he returned to the Nicola, he went instantly to the radar room to make sure that pictures taken through his scanner had turned out well. And there was Diane. But the skipper's voice boomed at him from the wall. Mr. Baird, what have you to add to the information you sent back? Three items, sir, said Baird. He drew a deep breath. For the first, sir, the plumy ship is unarmed. They've tractor and presser beams for handling material. They probably used them to build their cairns, but they weren't meant for weapons. The plumies, sir, hadn't a thing to fight with when they drove for us after we detected them. The skipper blinked hard. Are you sure of that, Mr. Baird? Yes, sir, said Baird uncomfortably. The plumie ship is an exploring ship, a survey ship, sir. You saw their mapping equipment. But when they spotted us and we spotted them, they bluffed. 
When we fired rockets at them, they turned them back with tractor and presser beams. They drove for us, sir, to try to destroy us with our own bombs, because they didn't have any of their own. The skipper's mouth opened and closed. Another item, sir, said Baird, more uncomfortably still. They don't use iron or steel. Every metal object I saw was either a bronze or a light metal. I suspect some of their equipment's made of potassium, and I'm fairly sure they use sodium in place of aluminum. Their atmosphere is quite different from ours, obviously. They'd use bronze for their ship's hull because they can venture into an oxygen atmosphere in a bronze ship. A sodium-hulled ship would be lighter, but it would burn in oxygen. Where there was moisture, the skipper blinked. But they couldn't drive in a non-magnetic hull, he protested. A ship has to be magnetic to drive. Sir, said Baird, his voice still shaken, they don't use a magnetronic drive. I once saw a picture of the drive they use in a stereo on the history of space travel. The principle's very old. We've practically forgotten it. End of Part 3